Tonight on Huckabee, Newt Gingrich talks election status, Michael Reagan, the Journey Home Project, and music from Jeannie Seeley and special guest. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Bilbrey. And now, here's Mike Huckabee! Oh, welcome, everybody. We are so glad you're here. Tonight is a special night in our show because all of our audience, veterans and their families, everyone in our audience, and that's because as we have this show closest to Veterans Day, we want to pay tribute to the people whose service and whose sacrifice have gifted us our freedom. We don't have it without them. And it is never lost upon me that if it were not for the folks in uniform, I might not enjoy the extraordinary liberty that is mine as an American. Now, over behind Keith Bilbrey, we want you to see what we've got. It's this beautiful flag, and what you may not be able to see real uh, clearly, there are uh, replica dog tags representing various people of the military who have served our country and whose friends or family have honored them by putting their name on this flag. We keep it here at our show. Uh, Miss Juanette Turner, who is our wonderful audience experience coordinator, has put this together. Now, since we've started the show, we have now over 1,250 of these dog tags representing people in our audience who have come and put the names of a loved one uh, as a, just a reminder of what all of us are uh, grateful for, the service of those in our military. So that wonderful flag, Keith, it's it's pretty special, and you get to stand over by it tonight, Yeah, it's don't you? beautiful. And you know, some of these names go all the way back to the Civil War to present day. Some are still living, some have, have gone on, but uh, boy, what a, what a tribute, and she did a great job on it when that did. And, and a great way for us to uh, remember our veterans as we start the show. Well, just when we did not think 2020 could get any more bizarre, we had an election. And more people voted than ever in the history of the country, despite a Chinese virus that was forcing a lockdown for most Americans for most of the year. Well, Joe Biden has been declared the winner of the hard-fought election, so he and Kamala Harris will be headed to the White House in January. But it is reported that he's not going to use the Oval Office because there's this really cool basement at the White House, and he feels more at home there, so that's where he'll be working. Now, as we tape our show, we still don't know for certain who won. Will Joe Biden be declared the winner after all the legal battles? Will he be inaugurated in a parking lot with a handful of cars honking at him while he screams into a microphone? Well... Half of America is ecstatic, and the other half is heartbroken. I don't think anyone doubts who I supported, but there are a few things that I want to put in perspective. First, we are blessed to live in a country where we, the people, choose our leaders by voting instead of shooting. 
it's ballots, not bullets, that elevate a person to the White House or to the Senate or the House of Representatives. Many nations have leaders who are installed by a military action in a bloody coup, or they just have leaders who are there because they inherited the job from their daddy. Well, next, regardless of who we voted for, we certainly can celebrate the fact that 160 million people voted. It's the most ever in our history. Hopefully, all of them that were indeed alive at the time of their vote. <laughs> but it really does reveal that as Americans, we did take the election seriously and we didn't sit it out. And when there's a low turnout election, it's always disappointing that people showed no real interest in the direction of their nation. It's the equivalent of saying, ah, whatever you guys want to do, just fine with me, even if it isn't just fine with you. And the voting was conducted in civility and in an orderly manner. 160 million highly opinionated citizens either stood in lines for sometimes hours and even in bad weather. Others went to the trouble of getting a ballot in the mail and then sending it back, and that is a logistical miracle for that. And in all of this, there was less violence than at an LSU football game. <laughs> You've ever been to one of those. And once we get past our passions and our own partisan political perspectives, we still will live in the greatest country on God's green earth. We really will. Now, of course, at every election, Hollywood celebrities threaten to leave the country if the election doesn't go their way, but they never actually leave. I say that's too bad. Because if they're that childish, we probably would be better off without them. And by the way, I've always offered to pay their one-way airfare to wherever they want to go, but they never take me up on it. If they would move, they might realize that we're a pretty amazing country after all. But I still don't want them back if they go. Well, I'd love to win every election that I'm involved with, but I feel I'm already a winner by being an American. We have our ups and downs, our bumps and our bruises, and I'm gonna keep working to make us a more perfect union. But at the end of the day, I'm gonna thank God that of all the places on earth to be born, by his grace, I was born in America. And I'll do all I can to keep it the land of the free, the home of the brave, and one nation under God. Well, Newt Gingrich made history as the first Republican Speaker of the House in 40 years back in 1995. One of the sharpest political minds in the country, Newt Gingrich sat down with me this week to break down the election and talk about his brand new book called Trump and the American Future which is about the president and what his populist revolution means for America's future. Mr. Speaker, what is it that the polls missed this year? How did they get it so wrong? Well, I think uh, one survey after the election, 19% of the Republicans said they were afraid to tell people who they were for. And I think the, the regular traditional liberal pollsters, just they didn't believe it. They didn't account for it. Um, they also, I think, failed to appreciate that Trump was gaining ground in the black community and the Latino community. Uh, so, you know, they, frankly, they weren't as far off as I thought they would be. I, I thought he'd win by a bigger margin. And except for the amount of vote theft, uh, he might well have been five or six points higher than he is now. 
Your book really talks about the impact of Donald Trump on uh, the country, not just for the election and even his tenure, but the bigger impact on the country as a whole and the Republican Party specifically. Talk to us about what that impact is and how you see it affecting yeah. us for the next decade or more. Well, I think that the fact is that uh, Trump is one of those rare charismatic leaders who has a set of very big ideas, uh, shifting back to a focus on America, emphasizing American jobs, uh, establishing a constitutional conservatism on the courts, uh, and, and deregulation. If you look at the totality of what he's been working on, uh, it's an amazing achievement. And so starting with the Supreme Court where, uh, you know, if it just uh, I think it's very possible that Justice Barrett will still be on the court in 2060 because she's young enough. Hmm. Now imagine that kind of impact that, that Trump will be able to say he, he permanently moved us from essentially a liberal court to a constitutional court uh, with the three appointments that he was able to make. One of the points in your book was that uh, you think Team Trump underestimated how brutal the attacks would be on him. I've never seen anything like it. None of us have. Most of us wouldn't sur survive it. He survived it. I, I think maybe thrived in it. But talk to us about that point in your book uh, and explain what you mean by that. Well, and, and part of the reason I wrote Trump in the American Future was to outline how large a figure in history that he really is. Uh, and the fact is that he came to Washington as an outsider. Uh, he came to the Republican Party as an outsider. And so when he beat 15 other candidates, uh, it was an astonishing achievement. And he moved on from there to beat Hillary Clinton. And the entire national establishment, including the sort of establishment wing of the Republican Party, were all just shocked and appalled. And so they set out to destroy him. And it's the most amazing story that uh, the day he was inaugurated, the Washington Post had an article about impeachment. I mean, it, just, it was just relentless, unending. And, and it came up through the election. Uh, I don't know of any candidate for president in modern times who has had as many votes stolen, who has had as much uh, bitterness against him. And uh, I think that that's a... And has had the media unendingly up through today uh, hostile to him. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, I'm not surprised the Democrats hate Donald Trump. I'm not surprised the media does, because he's not exactly uh, loving toward them. But I have been disgusted, not just disappointed, disgusted in the number of establishment insider Republicans who created this never-Trumper movement and the Lincoln Project, and I call it the so-called Lincoln Project, because it has nothing to do with anything Lincoln would have been a part of, React to that and, and how that is affecting us and, and what's wrong with these people, just in a nutshell. Well, look, I, I think that Trump was a genuine insurgency from day one. And he wasn't just against Democrats. Part of the reason people liked him was that uh, when he first announced, I remember there was a poll, 62% of the of the Republicans disapproved of their own leadership in Washington. Hmm. So Trump represented... Everybody who was mad at the leadership, well, large parts of the leadership didn't particularly like that. And they didn't like his style because he is a, while he's a billionaire, he has this amazingly blue-collar, aggressive uh, kind of approach to things. And, um, you know, he doesn't fit the country club Republicans. I mean, he made them very uncomfortable. 
Uh, he, he wasn't the kind of guy that have joined their club. And so uh, he then further infuriated the, uh, the foreign policy establishment because he, he carved his own path on economics with very tough trade deals. Then he carved his own path dealing with North Korea. Then he carved his own path doing something which I had originally offered in 1995. We passed a bill to allow the U.S. government to move the embassy to uh, Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. And every president every year had waived that bill until Trump showed up. And of course, everybody in the old foreign policy establishment said, this will be horrible. These were all the people who had told George W. Bush and had told other, you know, others, please don't do this. This will be terrible. Well, it turned out it set the base for uh, three different Arab countries now to recognize Israel, greatest breakthrough in a quarter century. That just drives these guys crazy because they were supposed to be really smart. And it turned out they're not nearly as smart as Donald Trump. And then, frankly, part of that is jealousy. Uh, part of it is that, you know, he, he was supposed to take notes while they lectured him. And instead, he went out and made history very often by uh, consciously and deliberately breaking uh, with their particular ideas. Well, I hope people will get your book, and, and I hope they don't think it's just about the election, because it's about the bigger picture of restructuring of the Republican Party and really of American uh, exceptionalism and American populism. Newt Gingrich, great to see you. Thank you for joining us. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Always great to uh, have a conversation with Newt Gingrich, truly one of the smartest people I've ever been around. I don't know if you know this or not, but by training, he is a historian was a history professor before he got into politics. And you can sometimes tell when you listen to him. By the way, you can pick up Newt Gingrich's book, Trump and the American Future, anywhere books are sold. You can also visit Gingrich360.com for all things Newt, including his podcast, Newt's World. Hey, we'll be back in just a minute. Stay with us. Coming up, political strategist Michael Reagan, plus country music stars Jeannie Seeley, Bill Anderson, and Steve Warner. More Huckabee is on the way. MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. And welcome back. Uh, my next guest is the son of one of our most revered presidents, and he's now heading up a project to honor our great veterans. It's called The Walkway to Victory, and it will memorialize the courageous men and women who liberated Europe and helped bring about the end of World War II. This week, I sat down with Michael Reagan to tell us all about it ahead of Veterans Day. Michael, we're honoring veterans on this particular show, and I thought how appropriate to have you here. Tell us a little bit about the uh, Walkway to Victory project and your involvement in it. You know, this will be the 101st anniversary of celebration of Veterans Day. And my foundation, the Reagan Legacy Foundation, has a program called Walkway to Victory. And people can go on the, you know, online to walkwaytovictory.com, and they can order a brick with the name of a loved one who served in the Second World War and, and put their name on it and who they served with uh, in the European theater. And it's $250. And we'll put the brick in the ground at St. Mary Glee's Normandy, France. We, we have basically worked in partner with the, with the Airborne Museum there. 
and they will have their name emblazoned for all of history for people to see and to know who it was that really saved the world. And, and, the, and the proceeds from this not only go to the brick, but any profits from that go to a scholarship program we set up about 12 years ago to give scholarships to the men and women to serve aboard my dad's ship, the USS Ronald Reagan. I, I believe that the jacket you're wearing is from that ship, the uh, USS Ronald Reagan. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely right. The, the captain of the USS Ronald Reagan gave me this uh, jacket a few years ago, and I wear it special occasions like today, Governor, being on your show, talking about the walkway to victory and the veterans uh, who my father honored. You know, I don't know if people know this, but my father was the first president to actually speak at Normandy, France on D-Day. Since then, of course, every other president has followed suit along with, with Ronald Reagan. So to be able to honor them with these bricks and honor those who saved the world, uh, the veterans that we should be honoring each and every day of our lives. Yeah, you have made the, yeah, you've made the comment before, I think it's very uh, appropriate to, to discuss, that every day in America ought to be Veterans Day. I mean, it's obviously very important to you, but it ought to be important to all of us. Uh, it, it certainly should be. And, and we should, every time we see a veteran, say thank you. And that, say it to them and really mean it. Uh, you know, when we, when we do these bricks and people are able to put a name on a brick, and, and if you don't know somebody, you can send a check to the Reagan Legacy Foundation. Just go to ReaganLegacyFoundation.org. Put in the memo, Brick Project. We will find the name of a veteran, and, and you'll have a, a brick that you can remember who that person was. But when they go to St. Mary Glees, and there's four buildings there surrounded by these bricks, uh, this walkway to victory, you know, and people see it, the veterans, they, they cry, they're in mm. tears that somebody would remember them in that way for all time into the future. I have to get the story of that Jeep that is behind you. I know there's something that must be involved. <laughs> Tell us why that Jeep is behind you and what it represents. Well, the Jeep, of course, was, is at Rancho Del Cielo, the one my dad had when he was there. And when Mikhail Gorbachev came up and visited the ranch, years ago, we were all there that day, uh, my dad decided to take Gorbachev on a tour of the ranch. And he went and he got the Jeep, and he drove over and asked Gorbachev to get in the passenger seat, which he did. And then the president, my father, ended up driving off with Gorbachev in the Jeep to the dismay of the Secret Service. And you see the Secret Service running behind the Jeep to jump in the back of the Jeep because you got the leader of the free world driving Gorbachev. And if the Jeep goes over, what in the world do they do? Oh, it's a great moment, great moment. You know, it, it so reminds us of why everyone loved your dad. President Reagan was such a spontaneous and authentic person. <laughs> that kind of moment, that little snippet from history, uh, is endearing, and I'm, it, it's great that you've got the Jeep there at the ranch and, and, and a great legacy. And speaking of presidents, boy, have we ever had an interesting mm -hmm. week with the election. Uh, <laughs> have you ever seen anything like it, and, and, and what does it tell us about our country, the good, the bad, the ugly? Well, I think the, the bad is, this is what social media has done to America. Mm. Uh, somebody in their underwear sitting in the basement of the grandparents' <laughs> home is leading the country, if you will, and telling us what to do and, and what to think. Uh, but again, we are the greatest country in, in the world, and we have our ups and downs. Uh, but I will tell you, nobody has seen anything like this 
uh, hopefully we don't see it again uh, in the future and we're able to find a way to, in fact, come together like my father did, you know, back when he was president of the United States and people worked together towards a common goal. When I tell people the last time we balanced a budget, Bill Clinton was president and Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House, they look at me in amazement yeah. that that happened. I'd like to see us get back to that point where we can find that common ground and go forward. And, and I think about my dad's gravesite. And if you read his the gravesite there at, at the library, he talks about, in all men, there is good. Find the good. America isn't looking for that good right now. We need to find the good in everybody because in everybody, there is that good. And that was the greatness of Ronald Reagan. Well, before we close out, I want you to uh, give us another word about the Walkway to Victory Project. Tell us the website again. How can we get one of those bricks to honor a veteran? Because I, I think that's a powerful way to just say to our veterans, we love you and we thank you. Walkwaytovictory.com. Uh, if you've never been to St. Mary Gleaves, the first town freed by America, 4 a.m. of D-Day morning, if you will. It's a wonderful place to go. They love Americans there. But walkwaytovictory.com. You can also go to ReaganLegacyFoundation.org, find out all the things we do uh, with, the, uh, with the project, the BRIC project, and, of course, the, the fact that we give these scholarships to men and women who serve aboard the USS Ronald Reagan. So all the money that we get in is used to help those uh, in the future, educate the young and honor the old. Michael Reagan, thank you very much. Great to have you with us. Oh, thank you, Governor. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with Michael and wow, what a legacy his father left for us and for what a president should be. Now, Keith is gonna remind you how you can honor a veteran on the walkway to victory. But before he does that, I gotta give a shout out to a very special veteran, Clyde Northcutt. He's turning a big 100 years old this week. He's a World War II Navy veteran, and to top it off, he watches this show. That is what I call a well-rounded individual. Clyde, thank you for being a fan. Thank you for your service. And I want to pray you have a very happy 100th birthday. Thank you, Clyde. Well, to honor special veterans in your life, visit walkwaytovictory.com where you can make a contribution and have the name of one who served enshrined on a memorial brick. Next, the Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project co-founder David Corlew. He's tonight's Huck's hero as we honor our veterans on Huckabee. Still to come, country music legend Jeannie Seeley with special guest Bill Anderson and Steve Warner. And welcome back. Let's have a big hand for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection tonight. Bringing us the music all evening long. Well, I recently launched the People's Podcast with Quake Media, where I'll be offering some commentary and insight on the news each week. And I'll be talking with a lot of interesting guests. If you haven't subscribed, I hope you will. Do it by going to quakemedia.com slash Mike. But don't really slash me. Just go to the website and sign up. Well, my next guest is a hero because of what his organization does for our heroes helping military men and women adjust back to civilian life. I want you to join me in meeting tonight's Huck's Hero. 
2014 by David Corlew and the late Charlie Daniels. The Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project provides the help veterans need for adjustment back to civilian life. With the ever-changing political landscape, veteran services often take a hit, and the Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project is there for veterans when they need it most. Whether it's counseling or help for veterans with PTSD, furthering a veteran's education, assisting with reintegration into civilian life, or rehabilitation for mental and physical challenges. The Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project connects veterans on an individual basis with the services best suited for them. It's one small way to return the favor to those who sacrifice everything for our great country. Only two things protect America, it's the grace of Almighty God and the United States military. It has always been that way, will always be that way as long as America stays a free and sovereign nation. Well, with me tonight is the co-founder of the Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project, David Corlew. David, welcome. It's good to have you here. And, you know, watching that video, my first reaction is, gosh, I miss Charlie Daniels. I miss him, and I know you do more than perhaps anybody but his family. Uh, uh, I certainly do. I miss him. I know the country misses him. He's, uh, I spent 47 years with him. Wow. And tra uh travel the world, and for... For a kid that grew up on West End Avenue here in Nashville, uh, to to have dreamed uh, and to see what I got to see and experience what I got to experience was was an unbelievable uh, run. You know, David, I think the fact that most everybody that has worked in Charlie's organization has been with him forever. I mean, he has the musicians, the band, and the various people have been on his team that were there for a long time. That says something about Charlie and the way he treats people, doesn't it? Yeah, he's wonderful. He was a wonderful person to, to work with. He was, you know, he, he had a great ability to be a friend, had a, uh, a boss. He, he was able to make that, that mix, and, and it worked well. It's kind of like being a Marine. Once, once you were with CDB, you were always with CDB. So <laughs> it was a great well, experience. a lot of us will always be fans. Every time I hear his music popping up on my iTunes, I just stop and think, what a great, great human being. And we're talking about something that Charlie launched, and that's the Journey Home Project. Uh, what does the Journey Home Project do? The Journey Home Project was something that we came up with. We spent a lot of time, obviously, during the 80s and the Cold War. We traveled and entertained troops all over the world. And we started to raise money for other organizations. We worked with a lot of different organizations. And we decided one day that we would, uh, if we were going to raise money in Charlie's name, and if we were going to give it away, we wanted to make sure we were good stewards of the money. We wanted to make sure it went to good use. And, we, and Charlie wanted to see the money work. Uh, there's a lot of great organizations that are large organizations, sure. big organizations. Uh, but we... we we like to focus on the ones that we donate to and we follow the money and then we're able to report back to our donors and, and let them know where it, where it goes. Where does the money go for Journey Home? Well, in the past, we've invested in a lot of programs. Uh, one of the first early programs we invested in was an educational program at Lipscomb, uh, a campus here that's a faith-based campus. And uh, a lot of it went to education. We got involved with uh, 
with obviously PTSD is, is such mm -hmm. a, a, a upfront uh, issue. And so we work with the Shepherd Center in Atlanta. Shepherd Center is one of the top uh, traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury hospitals. But a few years back, they started what they call the SHARE Initiative. And it's a, uh, uh, it's a PTS program that runs for six to eight weeks. They have a wonderful aftercare program. Uh, we work with Warrior's Heart in San Antonio, which is a 12-step based and a faith-based uh, uh, rehab center there. So we've done that. Uh, Operation Song, obviously with Charlie in our career. Uh, this is a songwriting program. It's called Operation Song. And we've, we've found that uh, one of the struggles is get veterans to talk about the pain and the, and the emotional uh, struggles that they have. And music seems to bring that out in us. And, and so those are the programs that we've primarily invested in. Uh, before Charlie's passing, uh, the suicide, the suicide rate is just through the roof. And, and it's something that bothered him both emotionally and physically. And, and so it, before he passed, just, you know, just in the last eight months, we decided that uh, 2020 and 21, we would start focusing a big portion of what we raised. We wanted to go towards that to try to stop some of this, this, this tragic well, David, end of life. You know, Charlie is bigger than life. One of those great guys. We miss him. We'll always love him. But I'm grateful that you're able to carry on a project that was near and dear to his heart to help our veterans through the Journey Home Project. And we're congratulating you for being a Huck's hero for keeping it going. And we thank you very, very much for being thank, here. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving and us the opportunity. Well, our own Keith Bilbrey, he's standing by. He's going to tell you how you can support the Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project. Well, before I do that, Governor, I hear that Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project has a very special presentation to make. Governor, David, please go to center stage and welcome Charlie Daniels, Jr. How you doing, Charlie? Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Um, Governor, we wanted, a, just, just a few years ago, we, Charlie and I had had a lot of discussion and we thought that as, as we got older, that if something happened to one of us, we wanted to have something that carried on the name and what we do and what we represent. So we came up with the Charlie Daniels Patriot Award. Uh, we've given away four of them. Chris Young was the first, the artist Chris Young was the first yeah. recipient. And I think you're the fifth, fifth recipient of the Charlie Daniels Patriot Award. Oh, so I have I Charlie Daniels Jr. here too. That is beautiful. Charlie, thank you. Absolutely, thank you. And give your love to your dear mother. Sure thank will. you, and, and thanks for sharing your dad with all of us. Uh, I don't know of anybody who is more beloved, not just in the music industry, but just beloved for his love of this country, his love of veterans and for just never being anything other than a gentleman in every way. God bless you and thank you, I'm honored. Too. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Congratulations. <laughs> All right, Keith, now you can tell us how to keep in touch with this great organization. Well, we couldn't get Miss Hazel to come on stage, but give Miss Hazel Daniels a big hand. She's in the house.
Meanwhile, I'll tell you, you can learn more about the Charlie Daniels Journey Home Project, donate and participate in their online auction at charliedanielsjourneyhomeproject.org, where you can donate and also keep track of the online auction. Coming up, we continue to honor our veterans with former Marine and author speaker Chad Robichaud. He's up next on Huckabee. Next week on Huckabee, Don Most, Victoria Jackson, and Melissa Sandschutz, plus country music's Billy Ray Cyrus. Chad Robichaud served eight, that's right, eight deployments to Afghanistan as part of a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. Now, he's also battled PTSD, but he's helped thousands of fellow vets through his Mighty Oaks Foundation. His brand new book is called An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle. Please welcome one of our American heroes, Chad Robichaud. Chad, good to have you here. Thanks so much, Governor. You had, that's a lot of deployments, Chad. That's, that's a lot of combat to see. Well, we see it after 20 years in war and terror, we've seen guys with, uh, you know, I've seen over 10, 15 deployments. Uh, my time was, I was a force recon Marine, but in a, in a JSOC task force, special operations, we do it shorter deployments. It's like four months deployments, and we come back and get trained up and go right back out, so. When you came back after all of that, yes, there were some things going on in your head that weren't like they were supposed to be. Did you know something wasn't quite right, or did somebody yeah. uh, have to tell you, your wife or your family, say, Chad, you're not the same person? No, it began, uh, it began with a lot of anger, frustration, which I've seen as a child. My father was a Marine. I was a Marine. My, my, both my sons, hmm. Marines. Uh, but I've seen it uh, growing up, so I knew something was, was wrong. And uh, the anger started to manifest in some physiological symptoms, like numbness in my arms and face, my throat swelling shut. I didn't say anything because I thought the guys I worked with would, you know, I think I was weak, mm. and so I've tried to push it down. Eventually, it got worse. I lost uh, some team members were killed in combat, and uh, and I, I, the wheels began to fly off for me, and I came home, was really in, suffering from debilitating panic attacks, um, paranoia, and uh, and some some uh, anxiety, major anxiety, and I eventually was diagnosed with PTSD. And uh, You know, it's, it's interesting to be chatting. You face combat. You face the very reality of likely dying over there. But the panic attacks were more from when you got home. And I think a lot of people who've never served as you have would have a hard time understanding why you were more overwhelmed by life in peacetime back at home than even in that combat. Can, can you explain that even? Yeah, I can. Uh, I mean, myself and many thousands of veterans that I've talked to that have struggled with the same things, we function in combat because we have to function. Mm. We have to function for our own survival and for the survival of our teammates to the left and right of us. And so in those moments, we function. It's when we come down and things slow down, that you're able to process some of those things. And, uh, and your, your, your limbic system, your brain, uh, can't process things the same way, and you have these physiological effects that manifest in things like panic attacks, where you literally feel like you're gonna die at any moment. And, uh, and you know, it spirals you into de deep depression, which I spent in a deep depression for a period of about three years, and I almost ended it in divorce, and, uh, and, and suicide. I've uh, faced a real battle with suicide. Uh, found myself in a closet with a pistol in my hand trying to decide whether I want to live or die. Oh, man. What was the turning point? What was it that turned you around? Because obviously that's not where you are today. No, well, I was uh, in that closet and my family pictures on the floor and I had a pistol in my hand and I was trying to build up the courage to pull that trigger. And my wife uh, intervened, she came to my apartment and I, I, 
I remember answering the door and we got in this argument and she asked me a question that radically changed my life. Mm. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the military, uh, going to special operations and all these things she saw me do. But when it came to my family, it came to my situation that I quit. And uh, there was no more soul-cutting word for me, uh. Governor, to be called the quitter. And, uh, and I made a decision at the moment I was going to turn things around, but I didn't know how. And a man stepped into my life to mentor me. And uh, through all the things he led me uh, to discover, the most uh, impactful thing that changed me was the restoration of my faith. Mm. And uh, I became a Christian, surrendered my life to Christ, and he mentored me for a period of about a year. And uh, through that process, I found restoration, I found hope, and I found ultimately what I think we seek our whole life for, and it's purpose. And that pur purpose manifested with me having a deep burden in my heart to share what I discovered with others. You know, one of the things that I, I found so wonderful about your book is you talk about biblical manhood. Yes. I mean, nobody questions whether a Marine is a real man. I've never heard him say, I don't know about that. So that's not even on the table. But for you, coming to Christ and then really getting a grip on what biblical manhood means, yeah. how did that manifest in your life? And, and what does that mean for you? Well, I think, I think the world, uh, particularly young, many young men, are confused when they think they have to choose between their masculinity and Christianity. I, I felt like I had to choose that. And I, I, did, I chose on a battlefield to put my faith on the side, hmm. which left the giant hole inside of me that I filled over the years with hate and rage and anger and bitterness, and it broke me. Uh, what I come to realize is there's no more stronger man on the battlefield of Afghanistan no. or life than men of God. And that, and that Bible has a very clear blueprint of how men should live, and, and women should live too, but speaking of biblical manhood, that men should live and how we respond to the hardships of life, because we're all gonna face hardships of life, whether we go to Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere. Uh, the Bible has a very clear path of how we respond as men. And uh, when I started making those decisions, I realized I had control of the choices. I looked back at my life and said, there's some bad things that happened to me. Yeah. And, uh, but those things didn't lead me to be in that closet with my pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices I made response to those things. And I realized I still had control of my life and the ability to make choices. And now I had these biblical principles that I was learning of how to calibrate my life and I came to this realization that I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future moving forward. And I had, now I had a set of principles to align that future with. And uh, it, it changed my life. Well, your, your life is now impacting thousands of others through the organization that you and your wife have created called A Mighty Oaks Foundation. Yes, sir. I, I want our audience to know about it, but I want them to know about your book called An Unfair Advantage. And the reason is, is because there's so many of our veterans who are struggling and, and they need what you've discovered. And you right. talk to them about it in this book, and I hope people will get it. An Unfair Advantage is available now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Get a copy for yourself or maybe get a copy for a friend or family member who might be experiencing PTSD. And you can find all of Chad's books, his other projects, and a whole lot more at chadrobichaud.com. I recommend you look on your screen to get it spelled right. This is a guy who is from South Louisiana, so no, it doesn't spell like you may think it does. Chad Robichaud. Be sure to check him out on social media as well. Jeannie Seeley, Bill Anderson, and Steve Warner are after the break. You will not want to go away. We'll be right back. Hey, are you enjoying the show? Well, it's even better in person. Reserve your free tickets by going to Huckabee.tv and be part of our studio audience. We look forward to seeing you here. And welcome back. Jeannie Seeley is a country music living legend. 
She's a Grammy Award-winning singer, and she's been a proud member of the Grand Ole Opry for over 50 years. That's hard to believe. To her millions of fans all over the world, she's known as Miss Country Soul because she's got a sweet and caring voice that just knocks your socks off. And she's also got a brand new album out. It's called An American Classic. It includes some special guest collaborations with people, ah, you may have heard of a few of them, Willie Nelson, Vince Gill, Ray Stevens, plus a couple of country music stars that are joining us here tonight. Would you please make welcome Bill Anderson, Steve Warner, and the remarkable Jeannie Seeley. You know, I got to tell you, I feel like I'm in the presence of uh, music royalty tonight with all of you guys here. Jeannie, yes. I love this new album. Thank what you. was the inspiration for you to do these collaborations with so many phenomenal musicians? Well, actually, Don Cusick is the one. He said, I want to do some different things. I want to do some songs and some things that people wouldn't expect you to do. And I want some talking points. Is there anything they don't expect you to do? At this <laughs> well, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, uh, and anyway, you know, as, as far as guests, and we're so blessed in this town to have so much talent to choose from. So trying to narrow down who to be my special guest on here, I told Don, I said, let's go with my Opry family and people who are real close that, that we hang together and just these are my Opry brothers. Well, the whole album is just filled with great songs. And uh, again, the artists that you have joining you, uh, this is a yeah. must get for music fans. You've got a lot of fans, but so does Bill Anderson, Steve Warner, yeah. all of these people. Bill, yeah. one of the songs that's on this album is one you co-wrote with a fellow by the name of Roger Miller back in 1961. I'm one of the few people that ever co-wrote with Roger. Did you ever hear what he said about that? No, what did he say? Somebody asked him one time, said, Roger, why don't you co-write? He said, did Picasso co-paint? <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that sounds exactly what I yeah. expected him to say. Now the song that the two of you did, it's on Jeannie's album, is called When Two Worlds Collide. Fascinating story of how you wrote that. I want you to tell us about that. Roger and I were riding from Nashville to San Antonio, Texas in his old Rambler station wagon in 1961. And we got that Roger had been wanting to write a song called When Worlds Collide. There was a very famous science fiction movie in those days called When Worlds Collide. And I kept saying, Roger, we can't write When Worlds Collide. That's the name of a movie. <laughs> I said, you wouldn't write Gone with the Wind? He said, yes, I would. <laughs> <laughs> and he would have. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, what if we called it When Two Worlds Collide? And he said, great. So we climbed in the back seat of his car with a guitar. We wrote the song in very little time, actually. But this was in the days, Governor, before there were little cassette recorders. Yeah. And we, we had no way to put it down. <laughs> and we were thinking, oh, we're going to forget it. We won't remember it in the morning. So we sat up all night long <laughs> from Nashville to San Antonio. I'd sing it, and I'd hand him the guitar, and he'd sing it to me. We were so afraid we'd forget it. We got to San Antonio about 8 o'clock in the morning. We called a guy named Neil Merritt, who was a disc jockey at the big country station there. He came over with one of those uh, Wallensack tape recorders. We recorded it there in the room Man. at the hotel. 
hell, and then we fell across the beds and went to sleep. <laughs> and 60 years yeah. later, it's still a big hit, and it's on Jeannie's album. Steve, Such one of the songs song. on the album is one you collaborated with. Uh, if you could call it that. If you could. Yeah, I did some awful nice vocals on this, if you could call it that. <laughs> I would call it that. Anything you do, yeah, I'd call it wonderful. I'm honored to be on this album. This album is so cool. I'm uh, thrilled to be a part of it. But I tell you, the story, I had a call from Bobby Tomlin, a wonderful songwriter, friend of all of ours, and Bobby said, I got my hands on a notebook that Dottie West had in her possession years ago. And Shelly West... Uh, I guess, and Ron Harmon, a friend of all yeah. of ours. Uh, anyway, he got access to one of Dottie's notebooks, writing books. And I remember when I worked with Dottie. You were her bass player. I was her bass player for yeah. three years. So yeah. she was my big sister, my teacher. I'd come in on the bus and she would say, what'd you write this week? I go, uh, my, that was my, I went to the Dottie West School of Music yeah. is what yeah. I did. But anyway, so I, she had me writing and writing and I wrote for a publishing company. Well, anyway, we're, Bobby and I had her, hands on one of her notebooks from the, I don't even know, we think from the maybe 60s or 70s, I'm not sure, but we found a piece of a song she had, this, and I knew her handwriting very well, so it was all her ideas and thoughts, little bits of ideas. There's one song that she had started and had just a few lines, and it, the whole premise of it was, uh, I just go on living, if you can call it that, and it was mm. about going through the daily routine, and Bobby and I just stopped, and we go, well, this, we have to, this is, Let's finish this. And we wrote it. And I was so excited. I put it down, did a little demo. And Bobby took a demo with him I'd made of it. And he called me the next day. Bobby called and said, I played it for Jeannie. You know she's doing a new album. And I go, I heard she's doing one. She loves it. So that's <laughs> how it came that's about. That's how it came yeah. about. And then I go, oh, my gosh, Jeannie loves it. You know, And, then, of course, Jeannie and Dottie were sisters. I mean, you know, they were best friends. And so it made perfect, perfect sense. Well, I'll tell you what makes perfect sense is to have all of you guys here be able to promote this uh, wonderful new album by Jeannie Seeley, and then to have you guys join with her and do some of the songs that are on that album. I don't know oh, what yeah. better way we could use our time <laughs> yeah. together. Jeannie, you are so beloved. We are honored Thank to you. have you along with Bill and Steve, but let's do some music. What do you say? Okay, and I can't, yep. you know, not, the old saying that anything is more fun if you do it with other people and people you love, and that's what's made this so special to me. Thank you for inviting me tonight, and thank you for letting me bring my brothers well, with me. <laughs> what an honor for us. Yeah. And in a moment, Jeannie Seeley is going to sing for us. But yeah. first, Keith Bilbrey is going to tell us how we can obtain our own copy of Jeannie Seeley's ah, wonderful yeah. music yeah. called An American Classic. Oh, you don't want to miss this one. You can get your copy of Jeannie Seeley at American Classic on her website and everywhere else music is sold. And after the show, go to Huckabee.tv for Steve Warner and Jeannie Seeley's performance, if you could call it that. Coming up, Whispering Bill Anderson and Jeannie Seeley sing together on Huckabee. And now, from a new album, an American classic, this is When Two Worlds Collide, featuring Trey Corley and the Music City Connection with Mike on bass and Steve Warner on guitar. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Whispering Bill Anderson and Miss Country Soul, Jeannie Seeley.
That's what happens. 